Well, several months ago, Elder Bob and I went to an elders conference, his family and our family, and we spent several meetings just dialoguing about the state of Cornerstone. And we spent a lot of time on the weaknesses of Cornerstone, and two glaring weaknesses stood out among many others. Two weaknesses of lack of evangelism and lack of prayer. Well, evangelism, we talked about that, and that was, as we planted our church, we understood that, that was our ultimate goal, but not our immediate goal, that because of the relative immaturity and instability of our body, that evangelism would have to wait for practical purposes. Now, a lot of our four years of being a church and the maturity that God has granted us, we, just, we, we believe that it is now time we're able to really um, lean forward and play offense and, and really be proactive in terms of reaching the lost with the gospel of Christ. And therefore, one of the things we will do is, for second hour for the rest of the year, our topic, our issue, our focus is evangelism and missions. <coughs> Excuse me, and this is the first sermon, first teaching that will start us off on that course. The second weakness, the global weakness of Cornerstone was lack of prayer. Lack of prayer at Cornerstone. Yes, we pray. Now, I know I pray, but a glaring weakness is the heart of prayer. Utter dependence upon God for all things. Especially intercessory prayer for the lost. I read a testimony. Anybody know Ben Wallace? Not the basketball player, but Ben Wallace, theologian. You actually know who he is, right? Ben Wallace III. He's a Dallas professor. He writes for Bible.org. And he's got his testimony online. And he was saved in Melody Land. You guys know Melody Land right next to Miracle Land? I mean, these guys are real charismatic. I mean, real, you know, foaming at the mouth charismatic. And he got saved from that, went through Vineyard, and then studied doctrine of theology and became a cessationist. But he writes how he's still a cessationist, but there's a sense where in his camp, the vitality of the Christian faith is missing. That the Christian life is reduced to doctrinal categories, is reduced to theology, reduced to the mind that he somewhat misses his time at Melodyland, at uh, Vineyard, the sense of fervent faith and fervent prayer. So for a man like that to share that, it's really honest. And for me reading that, it makes sense. I sense that in my own heart. And I sense that in, the, in, in, our, in Cornerstone. Yes, we have right doctrine. Yes, we have right theology. But is the price we pay fervent prayer? dynamic Christian living, a living and vibrant relationship with Christ? If that's the price, I think the price is too high. I think we must aspire for both. Right doctrine with right life. Right doctrine with fervency concerning the things of Christ. As Bob and I mulled over our global weakness of our body, you know, with evangelism, it was clear what we need to do. We need to teach on evangelism second hour. We need to support Milestone. We need to support Welcome Ministry. We're actually in the process of starting a whole new ministry, Evangelism Training Ministry, where we will actually go out to Irvine campus, go door to door, go to Cerritos Town Center, and cold turkey, proclaim the gospel. And that ministry is on its way. And so evangelism can be somewhat programmed into the life of the church to overcome our weakness. 
Bob and I discussed and we said, prayer is completely different. We can't program prayer. We can't, through some method or teaching or some, lack of a better word, some human mechanism, call people to prayer at Cornerstone, have Cornerstone be a, a body where we are devoted to intercessory prayer. We, we believe that it's, it must be a work of the Holy Spirit. That only the Holy Spirit can make our body a, a body devoted to prayer. And that Elder Bob and myself, that we need to exemplify that. That's the best we can do. We need to exemplify that. We need to be men of prayer and allow God to build His church. So with that, this week, I considered where and how we should start our study of biblical evangelism. And a lot of that conversation, my heart turned towards 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. through 4. I believe evangelism and missions begins with intercessory prayer. It begins with my prayer life. And it begins with your prayer life. It is my simple and humanly impossible goal this morning, in this message, is that you would all be devoted to intercessory prayer in 2003. Let's begin there, brothers and sisters. Let's set aside evangelism for now. Let's set aside missions for now. Let's have a simple goal. That one of our goals would be wholeheartedly devoted to praying for the lost. And with that end, I want to study with all of you 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. Now, a little background on this epistle. Paul was released from his house arrest in Acts 28. <coughs> Upon his release, he went to Ephesus to continue his ministry among the churches there. He met up with Timothy at Ephesus. He, what a joyful reunion. Paul left Timothy to continue the ministry at Ephesus. And he desired to go to Spain to preach the gospel. And he went on to Macedonia. And he instructed Timothy to remain at this church. Uh, during the, during the, uh, his travels, he received letters from Timothy. Letters of doubt and despair and discouragement. Talking about the issues that were confronting this young church at Ephesus. 1 Timothy is an occasional letter. It is a response to his son in the faith, Timothy's pleas for help, pleas for guidance. And so Paul writes this letter so that to teach Timothy how to conduct himself and how the church at Ephesus, the Christians at Ephesus, how they might conduct themselves in the household of God. The key verse to understanding this epistle is found in chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul says, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So the whole epistle is concerning ecclesiology, concerning the church. Chapter 1 about false teaching. And Paul's testimony is intertwined with his admonition against those false teachers. Chapter 2 is all about the church. About the importance of prayer. Importance of men 
not fighting, but being united and holy hands lifted up to God. It's all about women and their role in the church, 11 through 15. Chapter 3 is about qualifications for elders and deacons. Chapter 4, the good minister of Christ Jesus. Chapter 5, widows in the church and honoring elders and, and supporting and bearing up with one another. And chapter 6, how to relate to those who are slaves and the root of money being the love of, love of money being the root of all evil and how, how ministers of the gospel must not be motivated by such base, base motivations. This is all concerning the church. Now in the middle of it, in chapter 2, after dealing with false teachers, Paul addresses this area of prayer. Right? The first duty in Paul's mind as he addresses the needs in the church, second only to false teaching, is the urgent need for intercessory prayer. And in this short passage, we find three reasons why you and I need to be personally devoted to praying for the lost. The first reason, God urges believers to pray for the lost. God urges believers to pray for the lost. Verse 1, First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. By saying, first of all, he's not saying prayer is the first thing that ought to be done when Christians gather together. It's not the first thing in the order of worship that prayer is to be first. When he says, first of all, he's emphasizing the priority of importance. How important intercessory prayer is, is in the life of the church. That it is an essential activity. It is a primary activity. It is our loftiest privilege and at the same time our greatest responsibility. The Greek word urge there is parakaleo. It means to call someone, address someone to a course of action. In other, other texts, in other versions, it is rendered exhort, entreat. To plead. It, this, this parakaleo, to come alongside and to call. Para, come alongside, kaleo, to call. It means to come alongside and to call someone to an urgent action. Paul's words are thus an appeal. He's an apostle. He can come with an, with an authority of an apostle and command these people to pray. But that's a wrong motivation for prayer, right? It's not external. It's not act of obedience. Prayer is an, is an activity of the heart. That's why Paul comes alongside and he tugs at our hearts. He pleads with us. He speaks to our souls and he says, I urge you, men and women who call themselves Christians, pray for the lost, pray for all men. These four terms in verse 1, requests, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving, brings out the full meaning of intercessory and worship, worshipful prayer. These four terms highlight the varied aspects of the prayers in the church. They're plural. They point to a recurrent usage that we are to be in the thick of prayer. We are to be continually praying, constantly praying. Same thing that Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. Pray without stopping. This command goes all the way back to Christ. It does not originate with Paul. Remember Matthew chapter 9, 36-38, when Christ saw the crowds, they were harassed and helpless, for they were men without, they were sheep without a shepherd. 
They're harassed, they're beaten, they're helpless in the predicament of their physical ailments. They were coming to Christ to be physically healed, but Christ saw beyond that their spiritual sickness. They were spiritually ill. They needed a Savior. And Christ said, in response to this great need, what did Christ say? He said, go, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest field. One of the things that I've, I've personally gotten from short-term missions is just to go to the world and see people's eyes. That has been more impactful. One of the most impactful things that I've experienced in short-term missions. Just to go, when I was in Japan, in Osaka, Japan, and seeing thousands of Japanese people going to the subways or passing out flyers, inviting them to our cafe to learn English by sending the Gospel of John. I saw so many eyes who are so removed from the Gospel. When, you meet, when we meet people here in America, we know there is KKLA, there is K-Fish, there is a Calvary Chapel right within walking distance. I mean, there are churches, tracks, Christian radio, Christian TV, they're surrounded by the gospel. So as we pray, we know that that person has access to the gospel. And we somehow, some are confident, somebody is praying for them. It turns out to be true. All the unbelievers we know in our circle of influence, somebody is a Christian in their circle of influence praying for them. But when I was in Japan, I knew I was looking at eyes, person after person, where no one knew their name. No one was praying for them personally. This person was distant from the gospel. In that, in that city that we're ministering, in a suburb of Osaka, there was only one evangelical church, a church of five people. So I knew that this person was so far from the gospel and that no one, absolutely no one, was praying for this person, this lost person, by name, through a relationship. Just by seeing that impacts my prayer life. And that's what Christ said. Look upon the harvest. They're ripe. Look at the, how, the, how, the, how vast the harvest is. But what is Christ's call? He does not say, go into the harvest. He does not say, pass out tracts. He does not say, raise your voice to preach. He says, pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Intercess for them that God might send workers into His harvest field. You know, intercessory prayer lifts us from the mundane and the thin things that we're immersed in. Right? Just the temporal, meaningless, eternally insignificant things that we are mired in in Western Christianity. I mean, all of us are in the thick of this. Intercessory prayer allows us to rise above that and look into eternity and look into people as souls that are eternal that God asks us to pray for. It allows us to rise above and see life in eternal perspective. Our Lord calls us to see everyone through Christ's eyes. To see the world through the lens of Scripture and be burdened that the harvest is plentiful. It's plentiful. But the issue is, the workers are few. That is our challenge. That's what intercessory prayer does. It allows us in every place, in every city, state and country, we, we allow to see the world through the eyes of Christ and know that no matter their external pretense, 
that all is well, that sin is not holding them bondage, that they're not under the law, that, that they're living a carefree and happy existence. Through Christ, we can see their true spiritual condition. They're harassed and helpless, that they need a Savior, that they need to be saved. Therefore, I say, our Lord says, pray to the Lord of the harvest, that He may send workers into His har- harvest field. Linza observes, it is my belief that the Holy Spirit sends forth laborers only in response to our prayers. Right? Only in response to our prayers. I think Pastor Smith reflected that in his sharing with us with the men. Right? Did he share it on Sunday morning or with the men? Where he said, if people start supporting us, we'll continue our ministry. But if people stop praying for us, we're coming back. There is, there is someone who understands the power of the Holy Spirit and power of prayer and how God responds and God works and answers the prayer. D. Edmund Hebert writes, quote, God could send forth needed workers without the prayers of Christians, but, in his loving pur- but it is His loving purpose to relate His redemptive workings to believers through believers' intercessory work. He desires not to work independently in his ingathering of the harvest, but to have his redeemed people work with him. He works to communicate his will to his people and then delights to answer their prayers for the accomplishment of his will. Through intercessory praying, God offers each believer the glorious opportunity of working with him in fulfilling his redemptive purposes. End quote. This mighty power of prayer, Linza observes, quote, differs from all the powers of the world. It is the only power that cannot be used for evil. Every other power of the world can be used for good or evil. But the greatest of all powers, prayer, can only be used for good. And God has promised that by prayer, we can release His power to fulfill the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the world, end quote. It is the loftiest privilege and it is the believer's greatest responsibility. It is a ministry that is open to everyone and anyone. To the child in faith, all the way to the the mature, to the young and to the old. Anyone, child of God, regardless of age, gender or circumstances, can be pivotally used in this divine ministry. This was what shocked Isaiah in Isaiah 59, 15-16. You know, Isaiah saw it all. You know, Isaiah saw sin in its most heinous form, wherever he saw it. But what shocked him was that there was no justice. But there was no one, no one to intercede. In verse 16, he saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intercede. He understood there was no justice. People weren't obeying. People weren't following the Lord. What appalled them was no one was in prayer. Same thing with Ezekiel 22, 30 and 31. Ezekiel said, I look for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it. But I found none. So I will pour out my wrath on them. Ezekiel was saying that God had hung a sign, help wanted. He hung a sign, wanted, intercessory prayer, prayers. 
Men and women who will pray and intercede for the lost. But God says he found no one willing to be faithful to the loftiest privilege and the greatest responsibility. Well, what about today? I believe God is looking for such men and women today. Men and women who will stand in view of the appalling sinfulness of this world and will go to God and intercede for them and pray for them. We see that example with Abraham. When God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham went to God and pleaded for this decadent, these two decadent cities. And he intercepted for them, prayed for them. That's the model that we are called to follow. The first reason we are to pray and intercess is that's the urging of Paul. That's the command of God. That's the pleading of God to our souls, to our hearts. Paul calls pray for the lost, but also pray for leaders. Pray for every category of men that are there in the world. Second reason is found in verse 3. It says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. This is good and acceptable in the sight of, our, of, of God our Savior. The second reason for intercessory prayer. The word this in verse 3 points back to the commandment to pray for the lost in verses 1 and 2. Right? What is the reason that we ought to pray for all men? Because it is good in the sight of God. It is good. It is noble. It is colossal. It is... It is praiseworthy. It is beautiful. The sight of God. Hendrickson writes, quote, To the eye of God, such praying is excellent and admirable. To His heart, it is acceptable and most welcome. End quote. Right? Only, only a few practices of the Christian is, is, is said that it is especially pleasing to God. Acceptable in the sight of God. Only a few practices of Christians. In 1 Timothy 5.4, Paul says, When you take care of your own family, this is acceptable in the sight of God. When a man fulfills his responsibility and provides for his family, that's good. That's man's role, to provide for his household. That's good. In Romans 14.13-18, when believers serve one another, when believers do not put stumbling blocks in one another's ways, it is acceptable to God. Hebrews thirteen sixteen. when a believer does good works and shares his or her possessions, it is good. It is, God is pleased with such sacrifices. 1 Peter 2, 20 says, When someone suffers for doing what is right, when a believer stands and patiently endures through unjust suffering, finds favor with God. Those are the things that pleases God. One among them is intercessory prayer. Our prayers for the lost pleases God. God deems it as noble and good. You know, God is called here God our Savior. Paul is reminding the readers, reminding us the nature of God, the heart of God. His heart is to save. Christ came to save. Our message is a message of reconciliation. So how appropriate that our prayers are consistent with God's attribute, God's nature. God's heart is to save. How much more our prayers ought to reflect 
the heart of God. First reason is the urging of God. Second reason, it is good in the sight of God. Third reason is found in verse 4, the heart of God, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, there are three proposed interpretations from this verse. The first proposed interpretation is that God is God. His desires cannot be thwarted. His desires must come to pass. God desires all men to be saved. Therefore, all men will be saved. God will save everyone because He is so loving and merciful. This is all just a big you know, scam. This is all a, you know, a big cosmic trick where all it's about the gospel and Christians and non-Christians. After we die, God is so merciful, everybody is in heaven. Everybody is saved. Right? Another interpretation is that God desires all kinds of men to be saved. Right? A lot of Calvinists, Reformed friends, of which I am one. I'm a Calvinist, proud of it. I think I'm Reformed. believe that all kinds of men, all categories of men, talking about kings and leaders and, and so forth. Right? God desires all kinds of men to be saved. The third proposed interpretation, and notice I always put what I believe last, right? It's a way of just kind of buffeting in, saying that it must be true. The third proposed interpretation is that, I mean, it means what it says. God desires all men to be saved. What's so difficult? You know what it says in Greek? It says God desires all men to be saved. And whatever language you have, a, you know, it's, Korean Bible there or Chinese Bible, any language, it says God desires all men to be saved. Why, why the difficulty here? God wants all men to be saved. All, what does all men mean? All men. All men. Right? I mean, the whole context is everyone. Verse 1, prayers are to be offered for who? Everybody. No, all kinds of people or... Certain people know. We should pray for everyone. Second, verse 4, God desires all men to be saved. Verse 6, Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for what? All men. And fourthly, Paul is a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles, meaning all nations, Jews and Gentiles. That's everyone. So this, this verse means what it says. God desires all men to be saved. Every single person alive. What is God's heart? Wants that person to be saved. Isaiah 45:22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Ezekiel 18:23. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord. Rather than that he should turn from his ways and live, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Ezekiel 33.11 Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they might turn and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? What about John 3.15 and 16? That whosoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world... 
cosmos, the world, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever. God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient with you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's the heart of God. Third reason we ought to pray for others, that's God's heart. God wants that person to be saved too. We can pray with conviction and determination that we are not trespassing on holy territory when God asks, when we ask God to save someone we love, someone that we know. We can pray with confidence knowing that God desires the same exact thing. That God's desire and our desire are in one accord. That God's will is God's will. That God's will be, that God's will be done. Right? Matthew 26, Christ said, Lord, my desire is this cup be removed, this baptism be removed, but not my desire be done, your will be done. Your thelos be done. Likewise, God's will be done, but God's heart is in one accord with our heart. We need not wonder and question and wrestle with our desire. We can stand with the clear testimony of Scripture that our God is a God of great love and that He desires all men to be saved. It is my prayer, humble prayer, that and desire that we be a body devoted to prayer. You know, they say that you know, in Luke 6.40, a disciple will be like his master. And so seeing the side of Cornerstone is not easy for Bob and I. It is, it is difficult because it is a but a reflection of the leadership. Our prayerlessness uh, cannot be excused in light of the Lord's urging, the Lord's example, and our, on our Father's heart. I implore you, as a fellow sinner saved by grace, to come alongside of, of the leadership of Cornerstone and be on our knees praying for the lost. Let me just share with you uh, a few final thoughts. Maybe some obstacles to intercessory prayer. You know, what are some obstacles to intercessory prayer? I know the first one I thought of is wrong attitude. Wrong attitude. Maybe we see prayer, intercessory prayer, as optional in the Christian life. It is not a requirement. It is something that we add on if we have time, if we have the energy or the resources. We see it as optional. That's a wrong attitude. Whether we pray or not, we need to understand that we live by prayer. Prayer is a matter of survival. It's a matter of command. It is imperative. One of the imperatives of the Christian life that we pray and that we pray for the lost. Secondly, second obstacle is a wrong mindset. Wrong mindset. I see that, I see this in my own heart. We love to add but hate to subtract. But we don't want to 
We just want to add everything and add intercessory prayer to our lives. And that's not going to work. That's a wrong mindset. We need to cut out things if we're serious about intercessory prayer. We need to cut out things if we're serious. We need to subtract something if we're serious about intercessory prayer. Let me paraphrase John Piper. The greatest hindrance to intercessory prayer is not poison but apple pie. The greatest hindrance to intercessory prayer is not poison but it's apple pie. We want to get serious about intercessory prayer. We need to cut out the apple pies of the world in our lives. Now what is that for you? Do you sense the price that we pay because of entertainment? Because of music? Because of TV? Because of certain friends? Because of certain hobbies? Oh, the price that we pay for these frivolous things that have no eternal significance. I challenge you. You know, turn off that TV for a month. Right? I mean, turn it off. Get rid of it. Right? It is amazing how much more time you'll have for the priorities of life. You'll be amazed to discover how many hours a day you throw away and waste away at watching somebody else's memories. And at the end of the day, you have no memories of your own because you're observing someone else's. Thirdly, wrong doctrine. Wrong doctrine is an obstacle to prayer. Not truly believing that God desires all men to be saved. Not truly believing and not truly knowing the heart of God, the heart of Christ, His burden for, for global missions, for global evangelism. Final obstacle to prayer is wrong compassion. Wrong compassion. Do we have compassion for the lost? You know, we talk about false guilt, right? You know, like, you eat too much and you feel guilty. You eat chocolate and you feel guilty. That's such false guilt. I mean, let's be guilty of a real sin, right? If you want to eat chocolate, go ahead. You know, what's a few extra pounds? Right? God looks at the heart, not the external appearance, Right? Right? So we have this false guilt. How about false compassion? We're compassionate about the wrong things. Our hearts should be broken over the spiritual condition of the lost. Not at our own minor difficulties of life. You know, at our own needs and own wants. Things we don't get, we don't have. That's the wrong focus of our compassion. Right? Our, my final application. I have several more things here, but... I just want to just implore you, if we could just do this one thing. Um, get a prayer request down and daily pray for three people who are not Christians. I pray for them. I, you know, mourn, shed tears for them. It could be your dad, your mom, your brother or sister, co-worker, a relative, a fellow student, someone at corner, someone at the church. Commit in 2003. I'm going to pray for these three people that God might save them. I want to see what God's going to do, how God will respond to our prayer. He commanded me to prayer. That's His example. That's the heart of God. He promises to answer our prayer. 
I want to see what God will do in 2003. Let's pray. Spend uh, just a few moments just going to the Lord and asking God to grant us a, a heart to be devoted to prayer this year, a heart to be to be compassionate towards the lost, and a zeal to intercess for those who are lost in sin. Our great God, Lord, we come before you and we confess our sinfulness, confess our faithlessness. God, we've been soaking it in, just enjoying the Christian life, enjoying the privileges of all the spiritual blessings in Christ. And we've turned, uh, we've turned our cold eye to six billion souls that are, that are lost in this world without you. Lord, how can our hearts be so cold and callous? How can we wash the news Read, news, read the newspapers, hear about <clears throat> missionaries perishing in the world, hear about so many without Christ, and just go on with our lives. Just go on pursuing our, our goals and our pursuits. Lord, we are indeed um, lukewarm. We are indeed... Um, many ways lost our first love. For if you mourn and, and, and weep for the lost and we do not do likewise, Lord, where is our love for you? Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would bring revival in our hearts, that it would not be a man-centered or a church-centered movement, but it be thoroughly your work in our hearts, Lord, and each and every soul, Christian soul, that with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwells Lord, that you would um, spur us on. You would, you would move our hearts. You would rejuvenate us, revive us, God, and remind us of this lofty privilege and great responsibility to pray for the lost. Lord, that's the heart. Um, that is what we desire and we ask, Lord. And we, we pray that the heat of Paul's prayer life, heat of men like Peter Smith and Tim Coyle and other, other men and women like them would spur us on and cause us to uh, burn for you. We commit this year to you, God. We pray for those souls that we'll be praying for. Lord, that for your glory and for your name's sake, you would save them. In Jesus' name, amen.